The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Good morning, church. I'm glad to be with you. I'm glad to have the opportunity to share. And for those uh, that I forgot to tell, David or whoever's there, my scripture this morning is Galatians 4, 4 through 7. I'll get to that in a little while. But I'm not accustomed to having to tell you, and so you'll have it ready. Some of you were not here at homecoming, and I spoke at homecoming, and I spoke from this little stool, and you might be wondering, well, why is it that Greg stands and Scott stands and Now Wallace comes and he sits. Well, uh, I don't make a big issue of it. If you meet me in the hallway and you say, how are you doing today? I say, fine. And at the time, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, At that point, I'm fine. Uh, I do have neuropathy in my feet and lower legs, and I'm diabetic. So I don't have the strength that I used to have and uh, standing in one place for a long time, uh, my feet and legs give out on me. So I found I'm more comfortable this way and I can just do a better job. And so I began to question around and see if others did this too. Uh, my daughter Sherry lives over at Rock Hill in the church they go to. Of course, their pastor preaches three sermons every Sunday morning, and I can understand he's about half my age, but he sits down at a little table uh, to do his preaching. And then uh, I have a cousin that's a member of a large church in Greenville, and she told me, said, our pastor sits at a little table too, and uh, he's about half my age. Some of you listen to Charles Stanley. Well, Charles is about my age, and uh, he's been known to do his preaching from a sitting position as well. But then I found another one. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And then the rest of chapter 5 and 6 and 7 is the greatest sermon ever preached. Well, if Jesus could preach sitting down, so can I. And so... That's my explanation, and if you ever see me here again, I'll be in the same position, and I won't have to tell you why. But I thank you for your presence today. I know a lot of people are traveling and are with family, and I hope that you had a a very good Christmas. Uh, I did. I had my family at home on Christmas Day, and uh, just a wonderful time together, and uh, Looking forward now to a new year. Uh, This will be our last service uh, here together in 2014. 
And the next time we come together, it'll be 2015. And uh, Scott should be back with us on that time. And uh, I know that you've been praying for him and for his family uh, during this time. In our Sunday school class, we have spent the month of December uh, looking at uh, the Christmas event. And uh, we've spent uh, four Sundays, we've finished up this morning, with four messages that uh, dealt with some of the details uh, in the birth of Christ that are often overlooked in our Christmas pageants and in our sermons. And this has been a very rewarding study and a rewarding month for me, uh, especially because in this time, I've dug deeper into the Word of God than I've ever had time to do in the past. For example, two weeks ago, uh, we studied the passage of scripture that our pastor read to us last Sunday morning and spoke to us from that most people have never read. And that is Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Now the reason most people have not read it is because in those 17 verses, there are 45 Hebrew names and some of them are kind of difficult to pronounce and also, if you are still using the King James Version of the Scripture, you'll find a word begat that we no longer have in our vocabulary, uh, but that wor word is repeated 39 times in 17 verses. And so most people, when they begin to read the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, they just skip those 17 verses, thinking they are not important and go on and begin with verse 18. Now, Scott took a little different approach to the approach that I took, and that's quite all right. We both are in agreement that if you omit the first 17 verses, you've omitted the key to understanding the entire gospel according to Matthew. Matthew was a Jew, and he was writing for a Jewish audience. And he knew that if he was going to convince the Jewish people that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, he would have to prove that Jesus was a descendant of David and Abraham. And so in our lesson that Sunday, uh, we spent the entire time talking about why did he begin his gospel account in this manner and what does it mean we talked about the genealogy of Jesus well we've covered four different subjects with the latest one being this morning but there was still one subject that I wanted to cover but I ran out of Sundays uh, since this is the last Sunday of the month and Next Sunday in our class, we are beginning a two-month study of First and Second Thessalonians. Well, Scott came up and asked me if I would fill in for him while he's away today. And this gave me an opportunity to share with you the fifth lesson 
that I would have shared about the Christmas story uh, with our Sunday school class. And so I'm using all of you as my Sunday school class this morning. So would you turn in your Bibles or watch the screen for Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And then when I have read this, I want to talk with you for a few moments about looking at history from heaven's viewpoint. Beginning with verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let me begin this morning by uh, speaking for just a moment to those of you who are, let's say, 50 years of age or older. If you fit into that category, uh, you're going to identify with what I'm about to say, and then we'll get back and we'll, we'll include everybody. If you're 50 years of age or older, do you remember where you were and what you were doing on July the 20th, 1969. Now, I, I remember very well where I was and what I was doing that day. And that was a Sunday. July the 20th, 1969 was a Sunday. I was the pastor of this church. I was three months into my second year as the pastor of this church. Well, we had two services that Sunday, and uh, after the evening service, my family and I went back to our home and did what most families did. We went in and turned the television on. Uh, one of the ways that I would unwind after a full day on Sunday when I was the pastor at that particular time in history was I'd turn on the TV and watch Kojak. That was one of my favorite programs to unwind by on a Sunday evening, and so I'd sit and watch Kojak. But that Sunday evening, we didn't watch Kojak. If I said to you, the eagle has landed, that would jog your memory. At 10.56 p.m. that Sunday evening, Neil Armstrong stepped down out of a small space capsule and stood on the face of the moon. And then he was joined by his fellow astronaut, Buzz Aldrin. And I'll never forget the excitement that we felt in seeing those two American astronauts standing on the moon. Now, for those of you who are younger than 50 and you haven't seen this, I did it Friday. I went back. You can Google July 20th, 1969 moon landing 
and watch Walter Cronkite uh, narrate the whole thing and watch the landing uh, on the moon. It was an exciting time. For the first time in history, we had invaded another planet. But that was not the first time in history that a planet had been invaded. The planet Earth was invaded a little more than 2,000 years ago when God became man and paid a visit to us in human flesh. And Paul expressed it this way, as I read just a moment ago, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. At a precise moment in history, Christ was born of Mary in Bethlehem. Now, why didn't he come to earth a hundred years or maybe 500 years earlier? The answer is God has a program for this world. And he sent his son when the time was exactly right. In July of 1969, The scientists were so precise in their calculations, they knew exactly when and where that spacecraft would land on the moon. And then when Armstrong and Aldrin returned to the Earth, along with Collins, the other astronaut, uh, they knew where he would splash, where they would splash down in the Pacific Ocean. And once again, we sat in our living rooms and we watched by means of television the splashdown of the capsule into the Pacific Ocean. Likewise, when Jesus was born in that stable in Bethlehem, God planned his birth to the exact second. He was not a moment too early. He was not a moment too too late. I want to review with you some of the uh, historical events leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ and see this point illustrated. Luke tells us that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, that is a fact in history, attested to not only by biblical records, but also by the account of secular historians. Caesar Augustus instituted a series of enrollments for taxation purposes, beginning with this one and was to be repeated every 14 years. And this is not something that is surprising. There were two things that were expected out of Roman leaders One was to keep the peace, the other one was to collect taxes. And so to ensure the collection of taxes, Caesar Augustus called for a census of the people. It was to him a mere routine act of government. To the Jews, it was an inconvenience. But to God, it was the means of fulfilling a prophecy that was several hundred years old. Some 600 years before that wonderful night in Bethlehem, 
Micah the prophet had predicted the birthplace of the Messiah. He wrote this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Joseph and Mary both resided in the city of Nazareth. But when Caesar's decree went out, they traveled the 80 miles down to Bethlehem to register for tax purposes because they were both descendants of King David without knowing it. Caesar Augustus gave the signal that would begin God's long-prepared drama of redemption. And while Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem for taxation, registration, Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. It was not an accident that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Micah, the prophet, had predicted that 600 years before that. It was a result of God's predetermined plan. In my research for material for this message, I found a a statement and I, I wrote it down And then whenever I went back to begin to put things together, I couldn't remember where I had read it or who said it. But that doesn't matter. I still have the statement, and it's important, and I want you to hear it. And the statement is this. The drama of that first Christmas moved with such exactness and beauty that it showed signs of a long rehearsal. That says that God had been a long time in preparing for this event. And it suggests that if we want to understand history, then we must look at history from heaven's viewpoint. You see, unless we see God at work in history, it makes little or no sense. For instance, secular historians may trace the travels of a nomad by the name of Abraham from Ur of Chaldees to Canaan. But the sacred historian who views things from God's viewpoint declares that God was preparing a people through whom he would send his son to bring redemption to mankind. Whenever he said this to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. From Babylonian records, we have an account of the Jewish captivity that began in the year 586 B.C. But the sacred historian declares that through the captivity, God was purging his people of idolatry 
looking toward the day when through them would come the Messiah. Secular writers tell of the campaigns of Alexander the Great and how he conquered the world. Alexander was an enthusiastic Greek. Everywhere that he went, he founded cities and he beautified those cities with Greek art and he introduced the Greek language to the people. The sacred writer sees God giving to the world through this man a universal language, a language of concise directness, allowing people to say exactly what they meant. The Greek language was the most expressive language ever known to man or would ever be known to man. And at the time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, It was the language of all the people. It was the Greek language that would be employed in the writing of the New Testament. Communication between people has been, still is, and will continue to be a problem. But at the time that Jesus was born, there was a common language spoken by all the people, and it was the Greek language. The secular historians traced the spread of the Roman Empire, bringing law and order to the world and building roads and opening sea lanes. Roads were being built from north to south and from east to west, and all of them for the purpose of carrying merchandise to and from the city of Rome. But the sacred historian sees the hand of God at work preparing a world over which the evangels of of grace would travel spreading the glad tidings of eternal salvation. A road system and a sailing system made the missionary journeys of Paul a lot easier than they would have been otherwise. And so Paul was never more right than whenever he said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. There was nothing accidental, nothing coincidental about the birth of Jesus. It was predetermined and was planned from the foundation of the earth when everything had been accomplished that God had predetermined then it was time for Jesus to come to the earth and he came as a baby according to schedule and he was on time and through the birth of Jesus Christ we see God acting and moving in history and surely the world was ready for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, we have questions. One of the questions would be this. Why did God make all of these plans and carry them out? Well, in verse 5 of Galatians 4, 
It says it was to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God had a reason whenever he made his plans and when he influenced history. His plan was to redeem mankind from sin and to make it possible for all people to be able to become children of God. The Greek word, which has been translated into the English word redeem, is really a beautiful word. I said just a moment ago that the Greek language was the most expressive language that mankind had ever known. When a person in that time in history used the word that is translated to us, redeem, the person who was listening had a picture to pop up in their mind. And the picture was this. It would be seeing a person going to a slave market, purchase a slave, take the slave outside the market and set them free. Now, of course, if Christ redeemed those under the law and set them free, there was no reason then why the Gentiles who had not been under the law should now be under it. Jesus Christ came to make freedom available to all Jews and Gentiles alike. You may recognize this as a reference to the ceremonial law, but this redemption goes far from just freeing one from the ceremonial law. Jesus came in our nature. He was in the flesh just like you and me. And he died for us that he might redeem us from the wrath of God and the curse of the moral law, which as sinners we're all under. But this is only one end of it. He came to redeem us that he might adopt us as sons. Now, I'm going to add the word daughters there. And it's not that the writers of the New Testament were leaving off uh, the female. It's just this is their way of expressing things was uh, with the male. And uh, so to include everybody, I just add the word daughters. And the term adoption here is a term that was well known in the Greek world. The coming of Christ conferred upon those who trusted in him the rights and the privileges of family members, children of God. We are sons and daughters of God by grace. Jesus was the son of God by nature. Jesus bought our freedom from slavery to sin in order that God might adopt us as his children. One who was adopted was not merely a proselyte coming over from another nation to share in the privileges of the Jewish people. He or she actually became a member 
of the family. I happen to have two adopted daughters. And they're as much a part of my family as they would have been if they had been born to my wife and myself. They're mine. They belong to me. And no one can ever take them away from me. But there's another thought involved in this process found in verse 6. It's one thing for God to assert that a person who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation experiences being adopted into the family of God, but it's another thing for a person to give evidence of that fact. The voice of the Holy Spirit within the child of God gives that assurance. We don't put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and then have to wonder if we've been adopted into the family. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and you've been made a child of God, you will know it because that's the work of the Holy Spirit living within to give that assurance. Now, I covered quite a bit there in just a short time. Let me just summarize what I've said about verses 5 and 6. God's plan has always been the same. From the beginning, he planned for our redemption. He used events in history. He used politicians. He used rulers. He used those of the military. He used peasants to accomplish his goal. He worked through Greeks. He worked through Romans. He worked through Jews to establish the conditions under which he would send his son into the world. And he did it all for the purpose of redeeming us and adopting us as his children. It's wonderful to be forgiven and to be recognized as a child of God. We're not God's children by nature. The scripture says we're all by nature children of wrath. We become God's children by faith in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit living within us gives us assurance of this redemptive experience. Well, there's another question. What are the results of being a child of God? We find it in verse 7. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. If we are redeemed by Christ, adopted as a child of God, then we become joint heirs with Jesus Christ to all of the riches of God. And what more could any person desire than that? In history, 
we see God at work, constantly dealing with people and events through whom the Messiah would come to the earth. At a precise moment in history, when the time was exactly right, Jesus Christ entered into our world with the sole purpose of winning people to himself for salvation, and through salvation they could become his children and his heir. You know, history doesn't make sense without God. Neither does life. Only those who declare the Christ of the ages to be their personal Savior find that life takes on meaning. Stop and think about it. For centuries, God worked out a plan that would enable your life and my life to be meaningful. Have you ever approached history and life with that in mind? Well, whether you have or not, it's still true. Think about how much love is bound up in that action. And he did it all for you and for me. Now, here's the important question. In the years that you have lived, have you found the real meaning of life? Hopefully you have. If not, you can. You see, you can be a part of the great historical act of God. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. He moved in and through history just that you might have abundant life. Every time that we assemble in this place, there's always the possibility that there are those present who've not yet had this experience and are complete strangers to the abundant life that Jesus came to make possible for people to have. We're going to close our service in just a moment, same way that Scott closes the service. I want to give you a moment to think about what I've just shared with you. And as you do, if God is speaking to you about something that you need to do before you leave this place this day, and I have mainly in mind confessing your sins and putting your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and and accepting the salvation that, that he worked all through history to make possible for you. If you need to make that decision I'm going to come down like Scott does and sit here on the front row. Ethan's going to come in a moment and lead us in our time of reflection and invitation. I'm going to pray before we do that. And then I'm going to ask you to do just one thing. 
be obedient to the leadership of God as he continues to speak to your heart and to your mind and to your life. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I've tried today to do what you asked me to do. And that is to be your spokesman and to explain your word to the people. Now that I've done that, I've finished speaking. But you haven't. And as you continue to speak to the hearts and the minds of the people in this sanctuary today, I only ask one thing, and that is that your will be accomplished. And I'll thank you, and the people will thank you, knowing that you have moved through this service at this time in this portion of history to bring about your will in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.